0: Friends, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, look in front of you for one that looks just like this one here. We'd love for you to use it today, but also to take it with you as our gift to you. Uh, You'll find our passage for this morning on page 219 of the Bibles that look like this one. A while back, years ago I guess at this point, I came across what now I know is a famous quote from a very well-known Christian author named A.W. Tozer from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Here's what Tozer says there. Maybe you've heard it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. Here's what Tozer says. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What do you think about that? Does that sound right? When you think about what's most important about a person, about what most defines us, what do you think about? I can think of some other options besides tozers. I've heard it said that you are who you hang out with or You are the company you keep. Have you heard that? There's a lot of truth in that one. I mean, clearly we are shaped by our influences. Whoever's around us is going to affect how we see things, what we love, how we behave. I've heard it said that you are what you consume. Have you heard that one? You are, in other words, what holds your attention. You are what nourishes your body and your soul. There's a lot of truth here, too. I've heard it said that you are what you do, not what you say you will do. Surely that's true. It's easy to say something is important to you. But what you actually do when the rubber meets the road, that shows what's in your heart. What do you think is the most important thing about us? In the context of his book, uh, what A.W. W. A. W. Tozer meant by that statement has a little bit of all of these options that I've just rattled off built into it. And when, when, he, when he says that what we think about, when we think about God is the most important thing about us, he doesn't just mean what ideas do we have of God? What would we say yes to in a list? Where would we put check marks? He means... Who is God to us? What kind of company is God to us in our lives? Where does God factor into our attention and where it focuses? Our nourishment, body and soul. What is God to what we consume? And what difference does God make to how we live our lives? In other words... How does what we say about God affect how we live before God in God's world? Who God is to us is the most important thing about us. A biblical term for this idea is the fear of the Lord. It's all over the scriptures and it's central to the stories we're going to look at together this morning. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. How to live well in this world that he made. The fear of the Lord is what the Lord desires from us. And it's not a kind of quaking terror of him. What's he going to do next? But a settled respect for him that comes with allegiance and affection. A, A realization that this is his world we're living in. That what he says matters most. That what he does matters most. That who he is to us defines who we are. That what we see when we look out at his world, we see through who he is and what he wants. The fear of the Lord is the heart of our stories this morning. All of which have to do with King Saul and how he behaved as king over God's people. Uh, We're going to begin with a a text that's a hinge from what we looked at last week where Saul first rose to power to what we'll consider for most of today where where Saul falls off the throne that God put him on. And what we're going to be tracking as a silver thread through all of it is this question of the fear of the Lord. Who is God to Israel? Who is God to Saul? Who is God to you? I want to begin by reading the opening scene in our text. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I'm going to read from the first five verses. I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I've obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and I've made a king over you. And now, behold... The king walks before you and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I'll restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. This is... The word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to walk you through our stories for this morning in four steps, beginning with this one. Step number one, does Israel fear the Lord? This is a question that the whole of chapter 12 is meant to hang over the rest of the stories. Did you notice that at the very beginning of chapter 12, when Samuel stands up to offer what's basically his goodbye speech to this people he'd given his life to, He considers it as if he himself is on trial before them. He invites them to bring evidence, charges if they have them, evidence that that he's done anything wrong in his time as their leader. And this is just the first of several different examination scenes that are coming in chapter 12, all building to that one major question that will hang over the rest of the story. Does Israel fear the Lord? Samuel gets the first turn in the dock. Samuel is on trial in these first five verses. Surely it is no accident that as he presents himself to this people for his trial, his first words in verse 3 are, Here I am! That's Samuel's tagline. That's what you might call Samuel's life verse. It is his personal manifesto. It's the repeated statement that came up again and again in the story where we first met Samuel back in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we see Samuel in contrast to the leaders who came before him as one who was always listening to the word of the Lord, as one whose ears were trained on anything God might say, as one whose response to what God says was always the right one. Your servant is listening. Here I am. Basically, do with me what you will, what you say I will do. And now before Israel, that phrase echoes again. It's as if he's calling on all of that past to put it into this present. Now, at the end of, the, of his life, Samuel is still here, still Samuel, still that faithful servant who listens to God because he's God and obeys him because he fears the Lord. And you know what the best evidence is that Samuel is a man who fears the Lord? How he treats God's people. That's the best evidence. Back in chapter 3, when we first met Samuel, again, as I mentioned a second ago, the backdrop for that were the leaders that came before him. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were using the people to fatten themselves. They were taking bribes. They were stealing from the people's sacrifices. They didn't fear the Lord. There was no one above them in their view of what this food chain was. They were at the top. So Samuel, calling back on that history, says, "'Whose ox have I taken?' Whose donkey, whom have I defrauded or oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Tell me and I'll restore it to you. See, Samuel relates to God's people as if God is watching him. As if God cares the way this leader treats the people he's been called to lead. Samuel, at this first trial... Is showing us that he's finished how he started. From beginning to end, a servant of the Lord, not serving himself, pouring himself out for the relationship between the Lord that he loves and the people to whom he belongs. And before we move any further into this story, I think it's worth saying right here, right now, Samuel's story shows us that godly leadership among God's people is actually possible. That can be easy to lose sight of, especially in seasons like like ours right now where you you hear so often from every direction of leaders, even among God's people, who have abused their power to take advantage of those that they serve. This story is is a reminder that that's not a new story. That's been going back all the way to the beginning. Wherever people have led others, abusive leadership has been a thing. And sometimes because we know how common that story is, we can begin to expect to see that everywhere. We can take on a sense of suspicion towards those who lead us. And that can make it harder for us to get the care that we need from the leaders that God has given us. This story right here is showing us it is actually possible for leaders to stay faithful to God, for leaders to care more about what God says than what others think. For leaders to know that what they do among God's people, God cares about and will hold them accountable for. It's a good reminder that when when elders are talked about in the New Testament, in Titus chapter 1 verse 7, it's as if the job description that Paul lays out there was written from Samuel's life story. What should an elder be like? An elder should be one who's not arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. In other words, not like Hophni and Phinehas, not like those leaders in Israel's history who were only ever trying to fill their own stomachs, guided only by their own passions, doing whatever seemed right to them in their own eyes. You don't want elders like that, Paul says. What should they be like? They should be hospitable. They should be looking to give, looking to share. They should be lovers of good. They should be self-controlled like Samuel was and upright no matter who's watching. And underneath it all, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. In other words, they must be listeners who hear the word of the Lord and say, Here I am. Your servant is listening. What you say goes. You need leaders who won't edit or update the word that they've received, but will embrace it all the way to the end like Samuel did and for our church to be healthy what, what we're going to need is the supernatural help of the Lord Hophni and Phineas are what it looks like for leaders to lead in their own strength Samuel is what it looks like for God to do a miracle in somebody's life to protect them from themselves for the sake of God's people one of the best ways you can serve your church is to pray that God will do that miracle in the lives of those who lead you now and next year and the year after that from now to glory pray that the Lord will do a miracle and give you godly, trustworthy leaders who show his grace in how they lead you. Samuel was the first one on trial, the first man in the dock in chapter 12, building to Israel's examination. The second to enter the dock, in verse 6 of chapter 12, is God himself. God goes on trial. In verse seven, Samuel turns from defending himself to reminding them who the Lord has been for them. Let me pick back up there in verse six. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. In other words, let me give you evidence For who the Lord is to you from your past. When Jacob went into Egypt, the Egyptians oppressed him. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And all was happily ever after. Now, verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God, forgot him. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And then they cried out to the Lord and said, we've sinned, we've forsaken the Lord, we've served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of all the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And all was happily ever after. Now, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you've chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. In these verses, Samuel's basically summing up the book of Judges that we summed up about four weeks ago before we started into 1 Samuel. It's a story of what's been called the Judges' cycle. Where the, where, where the Lord is good to Israel and then Israel forgets that the Lord has been good to them and Israel looks around at what all the other nations around them in, are enjoying and they think we'll take what they're having and they forget the Lord and the Lord gives them what they asked for life without him as their God life under the oppression of those people that they preferred to be like and then they call out to the Lord and the Lord hears them again and he, re- he restores them back to the land he, he gives them the help that they need to overcome their enemies and then what happens? The cycle starts all over again and again, and again. Samuel's reminding them that every time they've called out, the Lord has been there. That they have seen from the Lord how good it is to have him for their God. What has this God done wrong is the question behind Samuel's summary. What has this God withheld from you when you've needed him? What God is like your God, Israel? And all of this sets up the, the question that hangs over the rest of the stories that comes to us in His challenge to Israel next, when Israel enters the dock. Look at verse 13, or four, verse 14. Now, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it'll be well. But if you won't obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. All of this walk down memory lane is not just reminiscing for Samuel. He is setting up the point that he delivers right here. It's all in his summary a few verses later in verse 24. Israel, only fear the Lord. Only serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. All that history now driving this present charge. Fear him. Live through him. Remember, he's given you every reason to trust him with your obedience. To follow him with all your heart. And now Israel's on trial. Most of what's still to come in First, first and 2 Samuel flows out of the challenge right here in chapter 12. Will they fear him? Will they live now as if he's been good to them back then? Will they remember what their fathers so often forgot? Will they serve the Lord with all their heart? Does Israel fear the Lord? That's point number one. That's chapter 12. Keep that question in mind as we exit the courtroom and enter a battlefield. The trial is ongoing. New evidence is about to be presented. Point number two in our stories this morning is that Saul fears the Philistines. Saul fears the Philistines. There are two things that you need to know to understand the scene that plays out in the first few verses of chapter 13. The first is that the odds are absolutely stacked against Saul and Israel. They are facing up against the dreaded, iron-wielding Philistine horde, the ones who had driven them to cry out for a king in the first place. They are vastly outnumbered and they are badly outgunned. Pick up with me in verse 2 of chapter 13. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel and a 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin, the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal. And all the people followed him, trembling. Saul has divided what men he has into two companies. One under him, one under his son Jonathan. And it's Jonathan's band that strikes the first blow. A Philistine garrison is quickly defeated. But there are more where they came from, and the rest hear about what happened. And verse 4 tells us that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. You don't want the Philistines noticing you. Verses 5 and 7 show us why. This enemy was not a normal enemy. They were stacked. Their troops spread out like sand on the seashore, we're told. And not only that, they've got thousands of horsemen. And not only that, they've got tens of thousands of chariots, which are like the fighter jets of the day. Major weapon, major firepower. And on top of that, the Philistines were famously ahead of the curve in iron making. So they had iron weapons that weren't available to other peoples. That's one reason they were so powerful. They even had a monopoly on all of this blacksmithing. The end of the chapter tells us that that the Philistines prevented Israel from getting any blacksmiths anywhere in their own land. So that even to sharpen their farm tools, they had to go up to the Philistines' place and let them sharpen their their plows for them. The Philistines wanted to make sure no one else has access to our weapons. That'll keep them in their place. And and we're told in verse 22, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor, nor spear found in the hand of the people with Jonathan and Saul. They are outmanned. They are outgunned. This is not good. And it's not lost on Saul's army. We're told that when the men of Israel saw, they're in trouble. I love that. When they see they're in trouble, they dive for whatever cave or rock or tomb or cistern they can find. Others just get out of town and cross the river and get out of the area where any kind of battle is about to go down. Not us. Not this time. Not with these odds. That's the first thing you need to know about this scene they are, the odds are stacked against them. The second thing you need to know to make sense of this scene is that God has given Saul a command for this moment through the prophet Samuel back in chapter 10. Back in chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel tells Saul to go down to Gilgal where he would then come to meet him to offer sacrifices to the Lord on his behalf. That was Samuel's role to offer sacrifices, not Saul's role. So he says, wait, Wait there for seven days until I come and then I'll tell you what to do. That is God's command to Saul through his prophet. And so here we are, a moment of decision. On one side, Saul has got a massive enemy and a diminishing army. He's feeling the need to act quickly before the odds get even worse. That's on one side. On the other side, He's got a clear command from the Lord. Wait until Samuel comes. Don't do anything until you hear more from me. I'll tell you what to do. Just wait. Who will Saul fear? Pick up with me in chapter 13, verse 8. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, that you didn't come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What happened here? What happened in this moment of truth is that Saul feared the Philistines more than he feared the Lord. And so he disobeyed. Uh, For us to learn what we need from this example, we need to go deeper. How did this happen? Why is this such a big deal? I think you can see where Saul went wrong and how he came to do what he did in the way he explains himself to Samuel. I mean, it, it, it's, it's so relatable, this pleading. Look, let me just walk you through what I did, why I did it. it. It all made sense to me at the time. Look, I saw the people were scattering from me. That's plank number one in my case. And, and then on top of that, you didn't show up. That's plank number two in my case. The Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I mean, look out there. They're like the sand on the seashore. That's plank number three. This threat, it's huge. And I was afraid they'd come at me. I was afraid they'd come down to Gilgal. I was afraid I'd be caught flat-footed, and I hadn't asked for God's help yet. See, Samuel, it makes sense. I forced myself. I didn't want to, but I offered the burnt offering. It all sounds so reasonable. Really, it's it's like Saul is approaching this decision the way you would approach what we might call a wisdom decision. something that you're facing in your life where you don't have a clear command from 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 the Bible about what to do. There's no law there to make it really clear. And you have to then just take into account all the factors that are around you. You just pay attention as close as you can. You get good counsel. You, you draw on experience that you have. You, you hopefully draw on true things that you know about God, and then you make a decision because you have to because you need wisdom, and you weren't told in advance what to do. But, but Saul was told in advance what to do. When you have a command from the Lord, wisdom means you obey it. No matter what else is bearing on the situation, you obey it because he's God. And he knows what he's doing when he tells you what he tells you. This is not a wisdom issue. See, underneath all this reasonable case that Saul makes right here is an insidious presumption. Saul assumes if God could see what I see, he wouldn't want me to keep this command. He told me to wait before all these Philistines showed up with their 30,000 chariots. He told me to wait before my men started diving into whatever holes they could find. Surely the main thing here is that we don't go out and fight without asking for his help first, without locking in his favor, without paying him what we owe through this sacrifice. Surely that's what matters most, is that we ask him for his help. Surely the main thing is pulling the right lever at the right time to get the right power on our side. Surely, under these circumstances, sacrifice matters more to God than obedience, right? Saul fails to fear the Lord. He doesn't recognize that God doesn't need flexibility. God doesn't have to adjust on the fly. The Philistine army is no larger than God expected it to be. The Israelite number is not smaller than God can afford to work with. Samuel in chapter 12 has just reminded them about Gideon. Saul should have remembered Gideon. The whole Gideon story was set up to show that God can work with anybody. Anybody. Gideon's got thousands of people. God sends almost all of them home. He keeps the army down to 300, facing similar odds against a similar army described in similar terms. And the reason God gives for trimming down Gideon's army that small? I don't want Israel boasting about this after we're done. I want them to know that I fight their battles for them. I want them to trust me and not themselves. Israel's God doesn't need Saul updating the orders to suit what seems best to him. But when this moment of decision arrived, Saul's fear of the Philistines drove his presumption about God. Under this threat that he couldn't face on his own, he did what was right in his own eyes rather than what's right in God's. it comes back to what I said a moment ago. He assumed that what matters most to God is sacrifice, payment, not obedience from a whole heart that trusts him. Friends, I think it really comes down to to who you think sees the bigger picture. To fear the Lord is to assume that God sees the bigger picture, not me. If the Lord sees the bigger picture then my role is to do what he's assigned to me and then to trust him with all that doesn't make sense, with all that doesn't seem possible, with all that doesn't even seem good. If I believe I see the bigger picture, then my role is to decide what's best in my unique situation and go for it with his help if I can get it, but on my terms. I wonder, friends, what commands of God Do you think that God would withdraw under our circumstances if he could see what you see? What about his word do you find yourself thinking if this were written today with the perspective of the 21st century, knowing all that we now know about how the world works? Surely God would have said... What goes in your blank? Let me ask you this. Where do you find that your fear tempts you to sin? I think one of the most important things to know about yourself is where your fear tempts you to sin. That's going to be different for each one of us. It actually might be different from one season of your life to the next. We don't stay static. The world is always changing. But knowing yourself well is going to be knowing where, for right now, you feel your vulnerability. And where you feel vulnerable in life is where you will be vulnerable to temptation. Maybe it's something you badly want to avoid. Maybe it's something you're really afraid of missing out on if you don't act now. Where is that for you? I think that would actually be a wonderful thing to discuss with a friend over lunch today. To talk with one another about where you see your own heart on this issue. What Philistines are you afraid of? Where are you tempted to update your instructions? For now, we move to point number three. Saul fears the people. Remember where we're headed. From does Israel fear the Lord? Hanging over all of it. Evidence number one is not looking good. Saul, he fears the Philistines, not the Lord. It only gets worse in chapter 15, the next crisis moment, the next moment of decision. We are flying over chapter 14, not because it doesn't have anything to teach us. It's an incredible story of another battlefield deliverance. When the battle actually happens this time, Saul is nowhere to be found. It is his son Jonathan who leads the attack, and he does it almost single-handedly. He goes up with his own armor bearer and does a, a raid on the Philistine's basically by himself how did he have the courage to do it chapter 14 verse 7 here's Jonathan's perspective it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few Jonathan's the one that looks like Gideon Jonathan is the one who fears the Lord. Saul only gets in on the action once he can hear the rumble of the battlefield and realizes that the Philistines are now all fighting themselves and destroying their own army, and he comes in to help clean up. And any boost to faith in God is short-lived in Saul's heart, as chapter 15 will quickly show us. This is the second pivotal example of Saul's disobedience as king and the final nail in the lid of the coffin over his reign in Israel let me take you to the beginning of chapter 15 let's read verses 1 to 3 together and Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel now therefore listen to the words of the Lord you see that again another opportunity will he fear will he hear and obey another test verse 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. This is another straightforward command from the Lord for Saul to carry out. But if that command is not hard for you to hear, you're not reading it right. The Lord is calling here for the complete destruction of a whole people and saying he intends to use Saul's army to accomplish that judgment. And I just want to say right here now, especially if you're here evaluating Christianity, exploring what it means to follow Jesus, what Christians believe about themselves or about the world or about God. Hearing those three verses read may sound to you like a kind of ethnic cleansing on a model that we've seen all too often in human history. And you may be thinking, is this what Christianity is about? Is this just one more religion that's adding God's authority to justify our abuse of one another? That's the right question to ask in a way. It is important to know why this action is called for and what makes this action right. And I want to invite you into that deeper conversation. I'd love the chance after the service today to talk to you in more detail about this command, where it comes from, what's involved, and how to think about it as you consider Christianity. But for now, to set up that larger conversation, I just want to make a couple of comments about what's going on here. In these first three verses before we move further into the story the first thing I think is important to know is that this command doesn't sound right to our ears because we see human life as uniquely and irreducibly valuable and we're right to see human life that way human life is precious in a way that no other forms of life are that's basic teaching of the Bible if, you, if your gut is reacting against this, it's because maybe even more than you realized, your instincts have been shaped by the teaching of the Bible about the dignity of all human beings as those who are made in God's image. You don't get that picture of human life from looking carefully at the world around you. There's nothing about human history to show that's how we ought to think of ourselves. There's nothing about the way the world works, about how the na- nature just works that shows that that's true. If anything, you'll get the opposite message if all you've got to go on is how things work out there. Our instincts about the value of every human life come from the scripture. So so it should be raising a question for us. If, If the Bible is what has taught us that human life is valuable, how is the Bible now calling for something like this? Because the second thing I'll note about all this is that the same book that teaches us our most basic convictions about human life Says that this complete destruction, man, woman, child, is just in God's eyes. I think it's important to just acknowledge what, what he's calling for here is as severe as it sounds. There's no special context out there, no cultural cue that we might be missing that takes the edge off. It, it is what it sounds like. And coming to terms with it means not taking this less seriously, but taking sin more seriously. The third thing you need to know about these verses is that the command that that God gives to Saul here is a command to fulfill a punishment from God that the Amalekites deserved. It's a punishment that fits the crimes they'd already committed against Israel in the wilderness and others long before Israel ever showed up. The backstory is is mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 15. When the Lord says, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way up when they came out of Egypt. There's whole stories about this. You can read about it in Exodus 17 and in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Basically, while Israel was wandering up from Egypt into the land God had promised him, the Amalekites were sweeping around their rear, picking off the stragglers. The Amalekites were hunting them, looking for the weakest, for the children, for the women, for those who were injured for those who are old. And what Moses says in Deuteronomy 25 is that they treated Israel this way because they did not fear the Lord. They didn't think God was watching. They didn't believe that God cared. They didn't think he was able or interested in doing anything about it. And God does not act impulsively. He did not destroy them all on the spot but he promised that he would hold them accountable, and here, hundreds of years later, he's going to set that record straight. Friends, most sobering of all is that the terrible judgment that's called for on these Amalekites right here. it's not actually a relic of some sort of bygone era, you know, a reminder that, boy, it's good to be alive now and not back then. It's actually a foreshadowing of what the Bible clearly teaches is coming someday for all who have failed to fear the Lord, who have put their own interests ahead of the interests of others, who have used their own power to oppress those weaker than them, who have lived as if God doesn't care, as if God isn't watching, as if God isn't God. There is a day coming toward which all of history is moving When the God who sees everything perfectly will account for every sin. What you need to know about Christianity is is, is that we don't call for this kind of holy war anymore. Christians have no charge from God to go out and attack all who don't believe in him. That's not what this is. But what's pictured here in these verses is fundamental to what we believe and to our hope in this world as Christians, it's fundamental to our gospel, our good news. All our hope in this world stems from our belief that we deserve what the Amalekites got a total destruction from out of God's world, but that Christ took that destruction for us. He went through everything we should have to face. He was banned in a sense from the presence of God, forsaken so that we would not have to be banned in the way that we deserve. And I would love the chance to talk to you more about this after the service if you'll come find me. For now I want to take you back into the story because Saul has been given another clear command to follow. What will he do this time? He summons his people, he divides his troops, verse 4, he lays in wait, verse five, and at the right moment he attacks and defeats the Amalekites, verse seven. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. That's all that's said about this battle. The action that matters is not the twists and turns of what happened out there on the battlefield, but what comes next. Verse nine. Saul and the people spared Agag. Agag king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In other words, what seemed worthy of destruction in Saul's eyes, he destroyed. What seemed worth saving in Saul's eyes, he saved. Once again, Saul just does what's right in his eyes. And so the Lord sends Samuel to him with a new word. This time, not a word of command, but a word of judgment. Look at verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel that Saul had come to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself, his own Ebenezer, celebrating his battle so that Israel wouldn't forget how great he is on the battlefield. And now he's passed on and gone down to Gilgal. So, verse 13, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "'Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord.'" Yeah, not so much. His first strategy is to act like everything's fine. I did it! But Samuel knows better. Ever the listening ear, always listening, Samuel says in the next verse, "'Well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears?' What then is the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So Saul's second strategy, verse 15, blame the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites. Those animals, oh, the the people grabbed those. Like Adam in the garden, he's blaming, blaming someone else for his own decision to disobey. For the people, Saul says, Spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. The rest we've devoted to destruction. We obeyed a lot of the command. And here you see the final plank in his strategy, the trump card of all trump cards. It was all to make a sacrifice to the Lord. That's why we kept the best animals. He's justifying his disobedience with his own religious motive. It's more holy to disobey than to obey in Saul's mind. It'll be better for God if I don't obey him now. And he just repeats the same basic lines in verses 17 to 21. Friends, if you can't relate to Saul's self-justification here in his response to Samuel, you're probably just not paying close enough attention. Our, our power to deceive ourselves about ourselves, about why we do what we do and whether what we do is, is, is right, is remarkable. And one of the ways God protects us from blindness like this is to give us a church full of friends who care enough about us to pay attention and when necessary to tell us what they see that we might not see. I want to challenge you to make it easier for your friends to do that and not harder for your own sake. And Saul's move when Samuel challenged him is to argue about it to try to bring to the surface all the things he thinks Samuel can't see. If Samuel really saw me as I really am, if he could just see my motives, he would know that everything I did was exactly right. That will be your instinct when your friend comes to you to tell you something they see that they think you may not. And you've got a choice when that happens. You can make it easy on them to love you like that, or you can make it harder on them to love you like that. You can invite it, shut down the excuse making, and just see what they see. Or you can push them away. But really, there's only two things that could happen they could be wrong in what they bring to you, and then nothing would change. At most, you will have wasted the time it took you to listen. Or, much, 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 much more likely, they're right in what they see, and you get to grow you get to see something that wasn't on your radar before. But either way, you've got nothing to lose. And assuming that you believe you aren't done growing yet, you have everything to gain in inviting this kind of love into your life. Samuel pushes through Saul's repeated attempts to talk him down. And he finishes off this challenge with what is, in a way, a banner over the entire sequence. Verses 22 and 23. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Stop talking about the sacrifices that you thought God deserved. He wants you to listen to him, Saul. For rebellion, disobeying him, it's as the sin of divination, trying to control him. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. You're treating him like the nations treat their gods. But because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And now finally Saul gets it. I have sinned, verse 24. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord. And he finally has insight into his own heart. Why did I do this? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice Saul does what Saul does because Saul fears the people more than he fears the Lord he listens to the people instead of listening to the Lord kids one of the most common places you're going to be tempted to disobey God's commands as you get older is going to be those times when obeying him would make you look bad to other people And maybe you'll be in a group of kids who are talking bad about another kid who's not around. And you know it's not kind to do that. And you know you would rather not have that done to you. And you know God tells us not to gossip about others. But you don't want to seem like you're super judgy. You don't want to seem like that kid who's always correcting everyone as if they're their mom or their dad. You don't want to be pushed out of the group. You don't want to maybe end up being the one that they're gossiping about five minutes later. When the Bible tells us to fear the Lord and serve him, it's saying nobody's opinion should matter to us as much as God's does. We want to do what's right in his eyes, even if it hurts us, even if it costs us in somebody else's eyes. And in my experience, adults, this doesn't get much easier for us as we grow either, does it? It's not something we ever really grow out of, this temptation to fear other people. It shape-shifts on us, but it's always there as an impulse we can nurture if we decide to. I wonder where you feel it. Where are people so big in your heart that God factors small? It can sometimes be hard to see that. Let me give you a test. Where do you find yourself tempted to adjust commands the Lord has given? Because you feel it would make him look better in the eyes of others. Saul, in his fear of what the people want, has almost convinced himself that the people are right. That, that that this will be better for God if God were like this, if God were wanting this. Are there commands God has given where it seems to you it would be better for him and his reputation if they weren't true anymore? Friends, there's one more question I want to leave you with. Point four, as we close, is for you. We've seen the question for Israel. Do they fear the Lord? We've seen a definitive answer about Saul. He does not. He fears the Philistines and he fears the people. How about you? Will you fear the Lord? For Saul, whatever dawning awareness here at the end came upon him was too little and it was too late the rest of the stories will show his humility before the lord wasn't genuine it wasn't lasting but for those of us who are hearing his word this morning it is not too late the very fact that you're hearing it right now is an invitation to you to fear the lord he deserves it he's worthy of your total devotion He's not content with a fee-for-service model. He's not content with you taking what you want from him and leaving what you're not interested in. He deserves absolute obedience. But you're invited into that kind of relationship with him even though you haven't feared him in that way up until now. Even though you have rejected him and his words over you time and time again. He's not finished offering you grace if you'll take it. To me, the most striking section of of all of this section is back in chapter 12, near the very end. The most remarkable statement in this passage comes in verses 19 to 22. Look at how Samuel reasons with Israel. Samuel says, let's pick up in verse 20, after the people have confessed that they were sinful against God, he says to them, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. That doesn't make sense. Don't be afraid. You're guilty. Wouldn't you think that he would say, you're not really guilty. You haven't done so bad. Don't worry about it. No, no, you have. But don't be afraid. Why? Do not turn aside from following the Lord. Even as guilty sinners, you can follow him. You can serve him with all your heart. Verse 20. Don't turn aside after empty things. Stop going after those idols that you preferred to him that only ever let you down. They're empty, verse 21. Why? Why can we still come back to him? Verse 22. The Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, he will not forsake his people because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The reason it is not too late for you this morning to fear the Lord and serve him now with all your heart is that God loves to make a name for himself by loving people who don't deserve it. This is his brand. Maybe that sounds a little bit icky, like self-serving love, like his love for me is not actually about me, it's more about him. But there is wonderful, life-giving news in that truth. A love for my namesake, a love that rings out about me is a love I have to earn. And I got to keep earning it for as long as I want to keep enjoying it. My love for Dr. Pepper makes a statement about Dr. Pepper. It's delicious. You know what happens when Dr. Pepper's not delicious anymore? If that, God forbid, ever were to happen. I wouldn't love it anymore. And it wouldn't get glory anymore. But, but if God's love for us is making a name for God, that is not a plate for me to spend the rest of my life. That is not a trial that I have to live on. He's not waiting on more evidence to see if I pass the test. He's making a name for himself as a God who is love, 1 John 4. And a God whose love is manifest. Not in whether or not he gets what he's owed from us, but in the fact that he sent his own son to be what he owed, what we owed to him. To be a propitiation that takes away the punishment we deserve. To get us off the list that the Amalekites were on. And to put us into his people forever. He loves us for his name's sake. And that is a love you can bank on. Won't you? Come and rest in him. He will have you if you will. Let's pray. Father, we know that we have no hope in a love that we have to earn. And so we thank you for Jesus who earned it all for us and now gives it freely. Help us to trust him in Jesus' name, amen.